Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntra is here. Great conversation today. Danny Fingeroff, the wonderful Marvel editor, writer, uh, the creator of Right Now, an excellent Tomorrow's magazine that I think uh, was instrumental in uh, the way that they uh, would examine the art of comic book writing. Uh, it no longer exists, but it was a great magazine while it lasted. Uh, Danny's been involved with a lot of projects and a lot of publishers and done a lot of work in and around the comic book industry. In fact, one of his current jobs is uh, coordinating and coming up with the panels for a lot of the uh, wizard comic cons across the country. In fact, he's coming to Chicago in just a couple of weeks for uh, Wizard World Chicago. I still call it Wizard World Chicago. They call it Wizard Comic Con Chicago. Okay, whatever. Uh, I sound like Trump. Okay, whatever. I, I, it's excellent, and, and people are going to love it. Um, so uh, it's it's a fun conversation. Infamously, Danny is known for being one of the editors on the Clone Saga, and you'll hear <laughs> the shields immediately go up when I mention it because I didn't originally read the Clone Saga. I remember I kind of checked out on uh, comics around the death of Aunt May. And I'm just like, all right, whatever. And I knew that the Clone Saga was starting, but that was literally one of the last Spider-Man comics I read. And uh, until, um, God, I want to say when J. Michael Straczynski was writing the book right after Howard Mackey's uh, run on Spider-Man. So that's kind of when I came back to Spider-Man. Um, and, of course, Ultimate Spider-Man with Bendis is another way that I came back to a Spider-Man. But, uh, you know, eventually we do get to talk about that. But we talk about when Danny was a writer. Uh, we talk about uh, his time writing Dazzler, which I think, as he points out, was kind of a unique character that on the one hand was ignored. But on the other hand, you still had to, you know, uh, come up with interesting ideas for her. And, uh, yeah, it was from the Cheesecake era. So, you know, some people today might object to the way the character was portrayed. But, uh, again, I guess I'm older and uh, I saw the fun in it. And I uh, think it was a great run, for example. Um, we we really have a great conversation. Also, uh, Danny talks a lot about uh, learning how to edit from Larry Lieber, Stanley's brother. And I think Larry Lieber is one of those comic creators that easily gets overlooked because he's Stan's younger brother. Um, but uh, Larry was a very significant guy in comics history. And we mainly focused on his Marvel time. But uh, you can't forget that, uh, as uh, Danny points out, Larry left uh, Marvel for a moment and stuck with Martin Goodman when Martin brought back Atlas Comics in the 70s. And Larry was a, a key editor for, uh, for Atlas at, during that time. Larry continues to draw the Spider-Man comic strip that is written by Stan and inked uh, by uh, my buddy uh, Alex Saviak, another guy who was part of the Clone Saga, one of the artists. And, uh, you know, so it's really great to get a, per, uh, a point of view from Danny on uh, on Larry Lieber. I also asked him about um, the relationship between Stanley and Will Eisner, because um, I think uh, a lot of current comic fans will read a book like uh, the Eisner-Miller book that Dark Horse put out, which was the series of conversations that Eisner and Miller had. Um, and I, I felt like maybe uh, Will was kind of giving a backhanded kind of uh, insult to a Stan, calling him more of a promoter than uh, regarding him at all as a writer. And Danny uh, gives us his observations because he knew both men. Danny is involved with Will Eisner Week, which is a very uh, important national uh, comic book celebration of uh, the great man. And uh, we talk a bit about that. Really interesting guy. Really glad I got to talk to him. Looking forward to seeing him at uh, Wizard World Chicago. And uh, I hope he'll come back because I really enjoyed this conversation with Danny Fingeroff. And I think you will, too.
Today's Word Balloon is brought to you again by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Um, fresh from uh, San Diego, and uh, one of the reasons why is because uh, subscribers to Word Balloon are, are willing to give me a dollar or more a month and uh, help me out with the uh, plane tickets and uh, the accommodations and equipment and uh, helps me uh, network with uh, these great creators and uh, bring you new people and uh, also panels from conventions. And it's uh, in a big part because of the League of Word Balloon listeners. There have been more people that have recently started subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon, and I thank you for that. Um, it really does help, and I, and I do appreciate it. Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. But if you want to help the cause, come to wordballoon.com, uh, click on the Patreon button there, or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. And if you can uh, afford a dollar a month even, I mean, I'm you know, or, you know, $3 a month, the price of a comic book. Do you think uh, the conversations I have here at Word Balloon Monthly are worth the price of a comic book? I think we're bringing uh, unique content, both me and the guests, that you don't find anywhere else. And that includes other podcasts as well. Um, so if you like what you hear and you think it's worthwhile, just like you think your favorite uh, book is worthwhile, if you can uh, spare a dollar or two a month, that'd be terrific. Uh, you can go to wordballoon.com and click on the Patreon button there or patreon.com slash wordballoon and learn all about subscribing to Word Balloon. So thank you again, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at instocktrades.com. Lots of cool indie books are uh, starting to pop up now at InStock Trades. Uh, things like Slash and Burn. From Cy Spencer and uh, Max Dunbar. Uh, this is a very cool action book, and uh, it is 45% off, just $8.24. You can get Deadly Class, Volume 4, Die For Me. Rick Remender and Wesley Craig continue to entertain with this very fine series. And, man, it's been a while since I've had Rick on, and I apologize because I love Rick. And, uh, you know, if I... Uh, if I were doing this every day, I'm sure Rick would be on a hell of a lot more. But he'll be coming back soon in the, in the months ahead. But uh, check out uh, Deadly Class Volume 4, 42% off. It's just $8.69. Um, you can also get Uncanny Inhumans, Trade Paperback Volume 2, The Quiet Room, Charles Soule, another guy that i got to get uh, back on, Word Balloon. It's been far too long. Brandon Peterson doing the art chores. Great stuff. 45% off, $9.89. You can get um, The Killing Joke is now, uh, man, they always find a way to repurpose this fine book. Uh, you can get it uh, now uh, in black and white uh, at 50% off. Uh, the wonderful book by Alan Moore and Brian Boland, uh, now a animated film, $12.49 for the Batman Noir version of The Killing Joke. So just a few of the great deals that are happening now at InStockTrades.com. Check them out for yourself. Go to InStockTrades.com. Okay, let's uh, get our uh, conversation going with uh, Danny Fingeroff. It's a lot of fun. I think it's pretty funny. And uh, like I said, I, I think initially he's like, hey, man, you just said hello and you immediately want to talk about the Clone Saga? No, no. And I think I proved that, no, I, I want to talk about your whole career. So uh, this was terrific, honestly, and it's, it's a long time coming because I'm a huge fan of uh, the gentleman, not only uh, through his uh, comic book writing, but his examination of the comic field, that's another thing that we talk about. Uh, he's written a lot of great books, including Superman on the Couch, which are uh, very thoughtful analyses of uh, comic books and superheroes and their place in society, how we react to them as readers. And uh, this is just a very thoughtful guy. Plus, I think because of his experience and when he worked, gives us a very different perspective on breaking into comics when he did compared to the way it is today. And I think it explains 
the um, catching up that I think a lot of comic book uh, professionals needed to do in addressing today's audience because a lot of them really came in literally when the the majority of people in comics thought that it was dying and, you know, eventually these guys were going to have to find other jobs. I mean, I've heard that from people like Frank Miller and uh, others of the late 70s, early 80s that were getting into comics. And it's like, what the hell are you doing here? Even Neil Adams back in the 60s was told the same thing. What are you doing in this business? It's dying. Don't you see what's happening here? So uh, it was a very different perspective than today's industry where DC and Marvel is kind of, as I've said before, part of the ride before you can maybe uh, graduate to being a creator-owned comic creator that can uh, live off your books and uh, and do it full-time. So uh, interesting conversation with Danny Fingeroff. Happy to bring it to you right now on Word Balloon. Danny Fingeroff, welcome to Word Balloon. Uh, as we were saying off the air, uh, we've met in passing, but it's nice to finally have a conversation with you. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Man, I'll tell you, a longtime fan. Although, interestingly enough, and forgive me, but the heart of your career at Marvel, it seems, at least as far as editing, that's kind of when I checked out of comics, like during the Clone Saga and all that stuff. And I wasn't back until 99. Um, well, you missed a lot of good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I mean, uh, wow! I thought it would take at least uh, you know ten minutes for us to get to the Clone Saga, but um, uh, yeah, I mean that. I mean that is a long, complicated story that I've told way too many times. But I, you know, the, are you sick of talking about it? No, you I can. Don't. I can always talk about it. Uh, you know, I'm. I'm uh, you know, it, I'm sure most of your audience might even have been born during that period. So. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but but maybe if you could, you know, maybe if we could have it in the form of a question, it would be uh, it would be less rambly, you know. No worries, man. No, and I, honestly, I, I I am fascinated by it. I read the original, of course, Jackal story back, right, you know, Jerry right. Conway's story in the early seventies. I think I got the Marvel Tales version. Uh, right. I, I don't think I caught the first run. So the Marvel but, Tales, depending on when it came out, might have had panels and pages cut out to fit into the uh, probably seventeen pages. Interesting. You see that? And I know, and here we go, we'll, we'll start at your beginnings, because you started as an associate editor and working for Marvel's British uh, product, you, right? You've done your homework. Yeah, I was an assistant editor uh, slash traffic manager in what was called the British department. I worked for uh, Larry Lieber, who, of course, is Stan Lee's brother. Mm-hmm. Larry had uh, come back from, um, you know, he'd been at Marvel his whole career. Then he had a couple of years at a company called... Atlas, uh, which was started by Martin Goodman, who had also started Marvel. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's yet another complicated story. But I, <laughs> but I, but I was working as yes, I worked as Larry's assistant, doing mostly reprint material. But we would do new covers, new splash pages, would sort of recap previous issues. Uh, yeah, the British um, comics had these stories broken up into shorter chapters to compete with uh, what we perceived as the weekly uh, market of British black and white comics. Things like 2000 AD, uh, Bino, um, I forget some of the other titles, but we so Marvel um, produced the material in uh, New York, um, including um, so I say mostly it was reprint material in black and white, but there was some Captain Britain material. That's where Captain Britain first appeared, was appropriately enough in uh, British Marvel. 
So and and you know who better to put together Captain Marvel than a bunch of guys from the Bronx and Brooklyn? You know that I mean I blew I blew the whole line. Who better to put together Captain Britain than a bunch of guys from the Bronx and Brooklyn? You know so uh, <laughs> absolutely. That, well, I even remember the original design. Uh, and reading uh, tomorrow's uh, magazines and stuff that you know that was more the Scottish flag wasn't it rather than a, like you know the Union Jack that he eventually had his like original uniform was like hey what are you doing you know Scottish flag. I wish I could say I did that much research but uh, you're probably right <laughs> <laughs> well did you help design no Captain no no Britain? it came in it was already it was already underway okay but I mean I I I, I do remember if think back to the dark distant past before the internet. Uh, and there was a, a story that called for uh, Nelson's Monument, which is one of the most famous landmarks in London. And I actually had to go to what's called a library, kids, and go to the reference section. And uh, you know, they did have they did have photocopy machines, so I think I was able to make a photocopy. I didn't have to take a giant piece of silly putty and uh, stick it on the page and then peel off a reverse image. You know, I was able to. Um, uh, but so, you know, so there was actual research involved. My favorite, um, you know, kind of wacky uh, anecdote um, from uh, Captain Britain was there was a two-part story drawn by two different artists. So, of course, neither one saw what the other was doing. And there was a, a cliffhanger involving a Gila monster. Which uh, I've never, um, you know, uh, I've seen photos, but I never knew um, until uh, the story I'm about to tell you what size they were. You know, they, the word monster is in their name, uh, but I don't think they're, you know, they're maybe a couple of feet long, and I could be wrong. But they're right. certainly not like twelve feet long. You know, they're not, they're not, <laughs> they're not monsters in those sense, but uh, in that sense, but. Uh, one of the artists uh, read it and saw the word monster and so drew it like it was 12 feet long. Um, and, and and which, you know, and aside from the fact that I don't think that's anything like reality, it's also um, different than the artist in the previous issue had drawn it. So... Um, was he like a normal lizard size? Yeah, the, normal lizard size. Artist? Yeah, um, but but the but the it was only shown in one or two panels in the previous issue, and the and the perspective was a little confusing. So he could have been any size, and uh, you know I think yes, Larry was on vacation, and I, this was this was probably my first major editorial uh, decision made independently. Larry was on vacation, um, and I was filling in, and I thought, well, just you know, I mean, all all I thought I was doing was proofreading the story, and then. Somebody pointed out, or maybe even I realized, that a Gila monster was not 12 feet long. So uh, rather than having the story redrawn, I just called it a giant mutant Gila monster. And uh, that, I, I, don't, I don't know if we got any letters complaining. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I did that That's for awesome. about a year and a half. And then, uh, and then eventually a guy named Dez Skin came along, uh, if you know that name. He was a... I do. Yeah, so Dez... Uh, well, yeah, and, and, no, honestly, she, a shame on me, man, because listeners might not know, but Des Skin was a very important British uh, writer-editor, correct? And publisher also. And publisher, yeah, and, and published the original um, uh, The Return of uh, Marvel Man, Miracle Man. Right, that's true, and, 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 and in the 70s, he was the British publisher of Mad Magazine and, and uh, some other well-known. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's really cool. Not, okay. I don't know what that meant, to, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if I ever saw... The Mads, I think they probably reformatted it for a British audience uh, 
and change the spelling of, you know, like we did, change the spelling of color to color and, uh, you know, stuff. <laughs> the, the, the ironic thing, uh, you know, we'd do that. We would change the spellings and uh, try to make to localize things. But the the funny thing was, you know, the real uh, fans, you know, I mean, say these, these, these were aimed at, uh, you know, kids six, seven, eight, nine years old. So I don't know if they were that discerning of fans, but the real fans wanted the actual American comics. You know, they, you know, they sort of saw the, uh, reprints as, uh, you know, as an inferior, uh, alternative to having the real comics. Um, but, but, uh, so Dez came over, uh, and, uh, eventually somebody at Marvel thought, gee, an actual British person, person, maybe he should be doing the British comic. They, they had a British office. Uh, a, um, it was me and Larry and, and a small bullpen, uh, doing, uh, you know, paste ups and art corrections in New York, and then we had our counterparts in England, one of whom uh, was Neil Tennant, who went on to be Neil Tennant of the Pet Shop Boys. Hilarious. Yes. Wow. Because <laughs> I know Richard Starkings worked in uh, in Marvel's British office as well. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think so. Not, not, I don't think in the time when I was involved with it, Paul Neary, Deskin, Paul Neary uh, were, were the names people might know. Near, yeah. Paul is known mostly as an inker, but as an excellent penciler and writer as well. Um, and very cool. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's. But uh, moving right along, what? What else has your research discovered? <laughs> well, no, I uh, uh, I wanted to. Well, also you had a nice uh, you had a nice run on Dazzler, which is interesting. That's true. Tell me about yeah. tell me about writing Dazzler. Um, you know, she was very clean. She, uh, took more baths than just about any, and showers than just about any other hero. Uh, Dazzler was an interesting, uh, phenomenon. You know, the, uh, the origin of the, of the character, you know, before I was involved, was she was supposed to be a joint venture with the uh, Casablanca Records, which was a big disco label. Mm-hmm. And she was going to be, um... Maybe. That's interesting. Wait a minute. Marvel had an actual deal with Casablanca because, as you say, really big label yeah. in that late 70s period and even early 80s. It really was that, like, almost if people saw Boogie Nights, like the record company version of that uh, story in terms of what was going on over there and everything, too. Um, it sounds like you know a lot more about it than I do. I mean, I know there was a guy named Neil Bogart who was running it, hence he called the place Casablanca, you know. Um, yep. And... Um, yeah, well, Marvel. I think from the from its very beginnings. I mean, even from the you know, from the four, from the thirties and forties, was uh, making crossover deals with other media companies. So yeah, the idea was that there would be, I think, Gloria Gaynor. I couldn't swear to that, but there was some disco diva who was going to be the you know the dazzler um, in a movie and live appearances. Uh, I, th- I think there was actually just in in one of the. Uh, maybe in um, Michael Urie's back issue magazine, the latest issue. I think there's a big article about the Dazzler. Oh man, I'm at the right. You see, um, San Diego's coming up, and I, that's when I catch up on yeah. all my Tomorrow's magazine. Yeah. and we're going to get to your yeah, but, Tomorrow's history uh, as well. Uh, as, uh, so. But uh, so, so the Dazzler was a you know phenomenon. Eventually, it was going to be Bo Derek for a while. There was going to be a movie. Hilarious. Uh, and then eventually, all those deals uh, fell through, and. Uh, Marvel had this comic it had, uh, it, it had put together, so we decided to go ahead with it. Uh, I was the assistant editor on it to Louise Simonson um, when it first started, and then because um, I'd moved to the British Department and gone to England, and I had a couple of other editorial jobs, and 
in um, at a certain point became uh, Louise. You may know her as Louise Simonson. She was called Louise Jones back then. She'd come over from Warren magazines where she was edit, editing Eerie, Creepy, and Vampirella. Yeah. And um, so she would be a natural for the Dazzler. Uh, but we no, we had this incredible, <laughs> and she was. We had this incredible. You know, the editor back then the editors were had a an unbelievable uh, workload. We had uh, the Dazzler and the X Men books and the Conan books and Man Thing and uh, Star Trek and Star Wars. I mean, we just we we must have put out uh, twelve or fifteen uh, comics a month just from our office. Anyway, so Dazzler, I was assistant editor then. There was kind of a, a personnel shakeup, and when the pieces landed. Uh, I was writing it, and Jim Shooter was editing it, and and it was uh, it was a a certainly immersive introduction to writing a monthly comic. You know, having uh, plot uh, conferences uh, with Jim and uh, with Frank Springer, and and um, you know, learning what it meant to uh, not only to do a monthly comic, but to do one that nobody took seriously. I mean, it's sort of you know, it simultaneously was less pressure and 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 more pressure because on the one hand, you know, everybody thought that you know everybody thought the dazzle was a silly idea because in some ways it was, and so on the one hand, if it was if it was bad, people would go, well, it's the dazzle. What do you expect? You know, and if <laughs> and if it was good, people would be pleasantly surprised. Sure. No, but it definitely was sort of a, a little bit more under a microscope, um, you know. Uh, and there was, there were, what well, it was, it was, it, was, it somehow came through that the comic didn't need to have her taking, you know, a lot of showers and uh, you know and stuff. I mean, that was sort of an era when that was. Uh, kind of a cheesecake kind of thing. Yeah, Is definitely. That yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. Kind of a cheesecake thing, you know. Yeah. Within the context, I mean, she did fight, you know, Galactus and uh, and Terax and <laughs> you know, and, and 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 you know, I, I think the I I think we did a credible job of making you believe that it was remotely possible she could do that. But it was it was it was a real a baptism by fire, you know. To it's it's not like somebody said, well, here, right. Uh, I don't know, a couple of issues of uh, Iron Man, or write a couple of issues of um, um, Shang Chi, uh, Shang Chi, <laughs> or so, you know. Right? It's not like somebody said, "Here's a, here's 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 sort of a you know, or man thing," or which, which are you know, which are a lot of those are things I worked on as an assistant editor or as an editor. You know, yeah. you can sort of you can you know, comics is is great because you learn while you learn. You know, you kind of, um, but Dazzler had. You know, it, it was an idea that a lot of people thought was goofy. Um, so, the, uh, you know, so there's a lot of attention paid to it, and and um, you know, so it was fun to do. I mean, I certainly I welcomed uh, the chance to uh, to write a monthly title to show uh, uh, what I could do to earn extra money, which was, um, you know, as opposed as opposed to today, where I, I think there's almost no staffers at uh, Marvel or DC who also uh, right. do freelance work. I mean, it's sort of looked at as, 
you know, as inappropriate or or or, or something. You know, that, double dipping, basically. Yeah. You know, it, it, yes, and yet some of the greatest comics ever done have been done by people doing just that. You know. No, I understand. Yeah, I mean, yeah please. But I mean, I, mean I, I, get, I get, you know, I get the ethical, you know, the potential ethical dilemma with it. But not only was it allowed, it was expected that you would do that in those days. You know, it was. Uh, sure. You know, it was one. It was a way to see if you, you know, did want to um, eventually become a freelancer. It was a way that you would, uh, for editors to really understand what it was like on the other side of the desk to be a freelancer and what that meant. And uh, and honestly, editorial salaries were so terrible. The only way you could survive, uh, you know, especially in, a, in an expensive city like New York, was to have in effect a second job i mean the i mean what had been fairly common you know uh this is something that ended uh you know the jim shooter um uh prohibited uh and i think that because that was a weird thing where there would be editors at marvel or editors at dc doing freelance for the other company mm-hmm. you know and again that was just seen as you know you, you got to do what you got to do to make a living you know that but when you, when you think about it i mean you know, it, it 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 speaks also to to the sort of insulated nature of the industry and how, uh, well, it's such a different comics world uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. But that but that that again that was seen. You know, uh, you know, I think I think uh, that that's seen you know as as okay for people to, you know, to work for one company uh, versus the other. I don't know if there's any. You know, to, to be a, you know, it's one thing for a freelancer to work for two companies. That's the definition sure. of being a freelancer. Of course. Uh, but to be, have a staff job somewhere and then do freelance for the competition does seem, uh, you know, that that's it's just one of those debates that could, you know, if if your company is tiny and you're writing and editing, then, you know, it's it, it's almost you you have, you're you're fulfilling every role anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, Matt Hawkins at Top Cow right now is writing a good portion of their books, and is like, yeah, we're a tight shop. I'm sorry, right? Like, you well, know, look, I, I got to do it. A guy named Stan Lee did that too. It worked out pretty well, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, and I, yeah. seriously, man, absolutely, yeah. and I, and I really appreciate like the backstory of that period because it was just accepted. Also, and this is something I've heard, and maybe you heard the same thing in terms of newcomers would walk in the door, and it's like. The old timers would be like, "What are you doing here, man? This is a dying medium. Oh, totally. We're going to be out of work next year or whatever." So if there's that kind of mentality going on as well, that that's true. You know, definitely that, you that's know. part of it. it. It was yeah, comics was, um, you know, say late seventy, you know, mid late seventies, early eighties. Um, the attitude, you know, look, as an art form, of course, it's never going away because people will express themselves, sure, uh, whether they make any money at it. Or not, but as far well, and as, but, but as newspaper strips weren't having the problem that comic books were, but go on. Um, yeah, the problem, you know, the comics really. We looked at it like, well, here's this quaint folk art, you know, this quaint American folk craft, <laughs> and uh, let's enjoy it while we can. And then the last one out, uh, you know, turn the lights out. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really, it really, and it wasn't even, it wasn't even like, you know, the way I just said it really sounds kind of depressing and fatalistic, but it was. It was just like you know, it was it was pretty much as axiomatic as saying you know the sun's going to go down and then it'll come up tomorrow. So you know that's just how that's just how things are. I, I think I think probably there was knowledge again not you know 
ways to, I think people always knew that whoever owned the rights to the intellectual property known as Superman or the intellectual property known as Spider-Man had something of value that people would be interested in, in paying money to see various versions of, but not necessarily in a, a floppy uh, comic book. You know, right? You know, I'm I, I'm doing a panel at San Diego about uh, comic book and strip inspired. Uh, films, but I'm even expanding it to radio and really just that golden age of, of Hollywood period to point out that as great as things are right now, it isn't new mm-hmm. and that a lot of these comic book and strip properties were being exploited in the other media, as you say. And I mean, you know, radio and film and uh, and ones that you don't, you know, automatically think of. But that's just part of my presentation. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Archie, Archie had a radio show for over a decade. You know, I mean, it's just crazy stuff, like a weekly, you know, sitcom. And, uh, you know, Jerry Lewis made Sad Sack. Right. Um, you know. Well, you know, so that's interesting. You did. The, 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 um, well, I think Sad Sack must have been, a, you know, maybe, you would, maybe you've done some research more than I have. I think it was just a military term or just a term for, you know. A, well, but it was, no, it was actually based on the comic strip. This really, specific, so, so that is, it wasn't just called the sad sack as an expression. It was based on the strip. That's very interesting. Absolutely. Oh yeah, it's in the it's in the credits and everything. Oh, I, I <laughs> that next time I see it, I'll I'll have to uh, look at, look for that in the credits. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. So, um, but, I mean, say say today you ask. I mean, this is sort of one of the premises of my book, Superman on the Couch. Um, that. Um, you know, everybody knows these characters. Uh, you know, everybody knows the Hulk. Everybody knows, you know, the Hulk is Bruce Banner, and he wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And everybody knows my spider sense is tingling, and that Spider-Man's Peter Parker, and the Superman's Clark Kent, and Batman, Batman's Bruce Wayne. I, you know, these are all uh, certainly American, and in many cases, world uh, mythology that people know. But even now, with circulation uh, you know, healthier than it's been for a long time, most people don't know that from the comic books. They know them as these intellectual properties that appear in movies, television, video games. Uh, you know, so they're you know, so those are, those are two. You know, there are a lot of different factors uh, in what we generally call the comics business by which success. Is measured, you know. So uh, Marvel and DC certainly say whoever owns those properties. I think I think even in the 70s they must have realized that that there'd always been there will always be, you know, a a some kind of interest in those characters. They were, uh, you know, now now we're in the era of the maximum uh, interest in and exploitation of those properties. Who owned Marvel uh, back when you started? Marvel was owned by Cadence Industries, which were the mm-hmm. people who had bought it from Martin Goodman. They were, I think, uh, originally they were called Perfect Film and Chemical, and they were they were a classic kind of. Uh, I'm sure somebody who's actually economist listening to this will 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 tell you what I'm about to get wrong, but um, it was a classic uh, kind of 60s and 70s hodgepodge conglomerate. They had, you know, maybe a dozen. Cadence owned ultimately like a dozen different companies, most of which had very little to do with one another. I mean, there was, you know, there was Marvel, um, there was magazine management, uh, which had been Goodman's, uh, Martin Goodman's um, publishing company for 
non-comics magazines, which was a mm-hmm, Med's which, Adventure, which, and... which was a much larger part of his business than the comics was for a long time. So there was magazine management. There was a company that made pen, pens and pencils called U.S. Pen and Pencil. Uh, there was a chain of movie theaters. So it wasn't, you know, if there was any governing philosophy aside from uh, we think these things will be making money. You know, there was there was no there seemed to be no thematic. But that was very that was a very common thing. So ultimately, Cadence then became just Marvel, and then it was, and then it went through various changes of ownership over the years. When I went there, it was um, it, it was Cadence Industries. Oh, okay. And I didn't know if you worked for them when they were New World or. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, anything, anything. And certainly, yeah, New World. Yeah, certainly yeah. in the um, You know that it was. Right, everybody knows that Marvel now is owned by Disney, and and so and there's and and we have the internet, so there's constant, you know, you hear constant chatter. What does it mean that Marvel's owned by Disney? Does it help them? Does it hurt them? You know, what are they allowed to do? What aren't they allowed to do? You know, I think for when the company changed hands for a certain time, the main way it affected us would be we'd have a different health insurance company. It would be like okay, uh, sure. now you're owned by New World, so your insurance is with, uh, you know, Blue Cross instead of with Oxford or vice versa. I mean, sure. You know, it didn't. I'm sure there were, you know, and and, and I and you know how now being more aware of, of of stuff going on behind the scenes, you know, I I certainly am am aware of how uh, corporate uh, politics and uh, philosophies affected what we were doing, but. You know, as far as we were concerned in editorial and in creative, it was really just, you know, you know, the good and bad news was that the various editors-in-chief did a very good job um, of shielding their staffs from that okay. kind of thing. There was, so that there was a, a feeling of continuity um, that, in retrospect, was probably an illusion um, but uh, yeah, so, so you know, we nothing. Business is, yeah, business as usual, basically. Yeah, which was a good thing until you know there was a certain point during the era when it was owned by uh, the Ronald Perlman uh, organization, mm-hmm. where um, the two, you know, the two realities tended to merge and blur, and uh, and, and and we and we and we saw you know how we were directly. Impacted by uh, corporate decisions made, you know they, they, that 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 was a, a different era. That was, um, and it was during that era that I I felt it necessary to leave. Things had gotten a little uh, unpleasant uh, there. That's when I went to work for Byron Price. We've probably skipped about twenty years here. So if you want to go back, no, but I <laughs> no, but I am interested. I, and and forgive me if it's like you know painful to remember or talk about. But yeah, I mean, I just do think. Two things. One, uh, in that early 80s period when New World owned them, you know, there was kind of this like moment where Marvel was kind of spitting out those movies, you know, Dolph Lundgren, Punisher and, uh, you know, uh, well, certainly you know, in the 70s, they had the TV movies and the television success of Spider-Man, but more importantly, the Hulk, obviously, in the early, into the early 80s. But then, yeah, you know, there just seemed to be that period. And I wondered how much that impacted the. the, the comic side. And then, as you say, the 90s, I am interested in, yeah. you know, and like. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Again, I don't. <laughs> well, as long as you don't, you don't have any preconceived notions about it going in, you know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've, I, you know, look, I've had uh, basically um, 
as far as far as I could tell, and again, I was certainly in my early years, I was not privy to like high level uh, well, sure. executive decisions, but it seemed to me the only real effect, you know, on the book, say the Hulk TV show had was um, we put a blurb on the cover going, as seen in the in the in the in the hit TV show. <laughs> that was pretty much, you know, and then they put well, and then and then, and, then, and then they put out a couple of extra Hulk. Comics to try to capitalize yeah. on that, but I, I, um, you know, I, 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 I think that, you know, excuse me, if you if if you look at it now as a as a comics person, you could look at what's happening now as the uh, tail wagging the dog, right? I mean, um, although again, that's that's something that's that's been true through the history of comics, even from the very beginning a lot of things we know we think of as you know as part of say the superman mythos comes from the uh, superman radio show jimmy olsen and a couple of other uh ongoing characters so i mean sure. and i think i think just by the nature of the fact that more people listen to a you know or more people watch a single episode of a show than you know read you know 10 years worth of the of a comics title Means that appropriate, you know, appropriately, the uh, the the two media should certainly be be matching. So if somebody goes from one to the other, they won't be mystified and go, "This is not the thing I saw on TV. Why should I?" You know, that, that that's another eternal, you know, struggle in comics to sort of try to keep the media, the comics consistent without, with, you know, without, you know, quote unquote, uh, selling out or whatever you want to call it to the to the more popular. Uh, medium, it just it just makes sense. Something's working. People know it. Um, you know, the, I mean, the, the quest. The, I get this question all the time, even today, from people: Why do Marvel and DC still put out comics compared to what the movies and TV show TV shows and video games mm-hmm. and underoos mm-hmm. and you know and apparel and everything else makes? Why would they, why do they even bother with the comics? And I have my own theories, but I. On the other hand, if if either company said tomorrow we're not publishing comics anymore because they're you know just like a small part of our business, I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked. I I think I you know my I I think that comics still even you know in the age of the internet or especially in the age of the internet still make an awful lot of money, so it's still a viable business. I think it's why they still do it, and I think it is you know research and development for the movies and TV shows. But I, sure. I would not be shocked. You know, I mean. Uh, if if one or one or both companies said, uh, all right, everybody knows our characters, and uh, so thank you very much, comics, and uh, we'll see you later, you know, right? Yeah, but don't you think they would? Because uh, you know, Marty pa- Marty Pasco and I had this conversation, and he just brought it up, and I, I didn't even consider that. But he's like, well, if that were to happen, don't you think like an IDW would go to Warner Brothers then and say, you know, we'd like to license Batman and Superman and keep making comics? We'll make them. Uh, Probably. I mean, uh, you know, I, again, that would not surprise me. You, uh, so much of it has to do with sort of the editorial philosophy. It's like if all the companies wanted, sure. right, if if somebody, right, if, if the philosophy or the thinking was, yes, look, and here's free money, you know, if you want to print our comics and pay us to do it, why not? Um, on the other hand, if there's somebody who says, gee, look, it's diluting our brand or it's, or it, or or if it's or or or, it, or it's going to make or it's going to take sales away from our movies. You know, it, you know, one thing that comics is famous for is not doing any market research. You know, almost <laughs> I'd say I'd say almost every decision. 
you've you've ever seen in a comic is based you know on sales and intuition you know so i mean you have you know, okay this sold we think we know why but wait we have to actually spend money to 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 like inquire and do a research about why people did or didn't buy something forget that you know <laughs> Joe Cunningham, uh, DC did that that retailer and and reader survey a couple of years ago, and I don't know how that, scientific that, that, their that's true. Yeah, I, I, was, I was being a little facetious. I mean, they they oh, do yeah, a case, no. they yeah, do a case, I, but they certainly don't. Right, you're right about the old days. Yeah. It certainly seemed like it was just sticking your finger in, up in the air and seeing which way the wind was blowing. Absolutely. Well, right. basically, in the old days, no matter what the question was, the answer was always gorillas. You know, that was pretty much. <laughs> Put a gorilla in the cover. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a solution to any problem in comics. Yeah, put a gorilla on the cover. That's right. <laughs> You're right. That's fantastic. Man. Well, but I mean, but, but from what I've read, that um, and I think in an interview, uh, you know, with people, um, uh, Donfeld, um, not um, not Harry, the son. Um, uh, who, Irving, uh, right? Irwin, Irwin Donovan, Irwin, Irwin Donfeld, yeah. you know. Did and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure Goodman did it too. They had, you know, books where they would have, uh, you know, each cover, and then what the sales, were, you know, they didn't get the, oh, they, sure. they didn't get the full they couldn't get the sales the full sales figures for close to six months, so you would track what was on that, and there were no and there was no such thing as you know as uh, as any kind of uh, fan oriented previews. So, so you know, so the assumption was people were buying each comic based on what was on the cover. And sure. so that's where the gorilla theory came from, because every time there was, every time there's a gorilla that seemed to have like a human mind trapped in it, you know, um, was so I, I don't think it was just gorillas. It was something where there'd be a human trapped inside an ape body or or or, or something. Like that. But that that was, you know, I think that's where sometimes. Uh, you know, there were like famous dictates in comics. Always use green. Never use green. You know, right? That was right, based, right. based on that. But there was no. So yeah, I think you're right. I'm sure that over the years there have been various um, surveys. Uh, but but as a general rule, comics, uh, the companies did not spend um, money on, on on demographic or market uh, research. Uh, so they just sort of fly by the seat of their pants and. You know, if, if somebody had a had a uh, successful track record as an editor or, or a publisher, then sort of they were looked at as uh, having a, a certain kind of wisdom. I'm not, were you a fan of? Were you? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. no. Go on. Was it a fan of what? Were you a fan of of you know Marvel Comics growing up, and was it this like a dream job uh, getting to work for them and everything? I was a big fan. I was I was the perfect age. Um, to have been uh feel like I was getting um jaded i was i was you know, I, was, I was reading I was a big superhero fan I was a comic fan in general, especially a superhero fan in the early you know late fifties early sixties okay and i've been i've been reading them long enough to start without realizing it feeling jaded with the d c comics with you know uh Oh, here's yet another story of Lois trying to find out Superman's secret identity. You know, uh, um, I mean, I dug them. You know, I mean, it's sort of, uh, I, 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 I was, I'm certainly buying them and, and enjoying them. And then a friend of mine says, uh, said, uh, you know, a fellow comic fan, a friend of mine said, there's this thing called Fantastic Four you should check out. So I went. The first issue I bought was uh, issue number four, The Return of the Submariner, and nice. uh, and it filled. Yeah, it suddenly. 
uh, filled an entertainment and a storytelling need that I didn't know I had. I was like, boy, these are really, these are different. Um, they're more like people I really know. And, and as I was getting older, and so I was ready for those Marvel comics, and I didn't even know that I, you know, I didn't know I was, but there were a lot of people who got into the business around the time I did, who within a year or two were the same age as me, you know, people who were uh, baby boomers, uh, you know, uh, born... Yeah, give us some names of your peers. Huh? Give, give me some names of your peers. Uh, Mark Grunewald, Ralph Macchio, um, um, who else? Bob Budiansky, um, you know, Tom, DeFal- know, Tom DeFalco, a couple of years older, but basically okay. the same ballpark. Um, Jim Shooter, uh, you know, those are the, those are the, you know, those are my uh, people born within a couple of years of, of when I was. Um, sure. So yeah, but and, and and so I think we all suddenly this thing came along, this approach to comics that was. Pretty amazing, and you know, and, and you know, a thing that people forget um, or never knew. You know, I think Marvel and DC were printed by the same companies, and yet, and if you look at them side by side, the printing on the Marvel comics of of the early '60s was really crappy. You know, where colors would blob up or they'd be off register, and they. They almost became three-dimensional, you know. I mean, you there, there was something a little that looked a little bad for you about them. That looked a little suspect. It's like, you know, even by you know comic book standards of printing quality, which are pretty low, these looked they looked dangerous and intriguing, you know. So I mean, you mm-hmm. can read. I mean, it's. You know, I sometimes see, you know, the very uh, fancy reprints on the glossy paper with the airbrushed, you know, modern coloring. And I go, well, that's nice, but there's something about being, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old and this this really, like, visceral product is in your hand. And, so, and of, course the, of course, the stories and the art were, were very powerful, but there was something about that cheap printing that was just appropriate and felt cut. It... it it it, it it shouldn't have. It should have felt like, well, I'm looking at like some, you know, they probably are printing these you know, in the middle of the night for, you know, 30% off or something. But but it just <laughs> felt three-dimensional. You've seen, you've seen some of those original books, haven't you? I, I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yes. And, and again, those artists as well, Kirby and Ditko, had that pulpy feel they to did. them. They did. And, um, you know, it was... Yeah, it was, it was. So I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I couldn't have articulated this when when I was a kid. But there was, yeah. So I was a big fan of Marvel. Um, I, I would say my dream future was to be Jack Kirby. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I saw it as a industry business career job. I was like, I want to be that guy. You know, <laughs> who I'd never met or heard or read much about. I just I wanted to be the guy that drew that stuff. Um, and then I, you know, then then I went through, you know, uh, sort of a classic kind of uh, abandoning of comics in adolescence, but then rediscovering sure. them rediscovering them through the undergrounds and through, uh, really a lot through um, the um, Warren, uh, Jim Warren's reprints of the spirit and the spirit, you know, was a big entry point for me back in. So, I, I, That's I, great. So, uh, so, yes. uh, yeah, that, on, that, on that peach colored paper? 
Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. Well, but the black and white ones, right? Yeah, but I, yeah, but I just mean the the paper that he used, and maybe it just colored. Maybe it, it yeah, that, that, that was that was aging. It, it wasn't peach colored <laughs> in the original. Okay, because I I have bought some, and I and you're I guess you're right. I do remember. I think I think what you're thinking of is the color inserts turned a little peach colored. Maybe that is it. But and I, you're right. The color inserts were amazing too. Yeah. But no, I was getting those in creepy and eerie. Right. Uh, and you're right. Those were like dangerous comics and stuff. Those are great. And I was. You know, I was 12 when I was getting that stuff. So yeah. All right. So yeah. So I'm a little bit older than you, than you but not that much. Um, so the yeah, um, yeah, 70s, like so, yeah, like yeah, uh, yeah. And so. um, and 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 um, what was I gonna say? So the the spirit was very uh, intriguing. And just the, I mean, I, yeah. One of my clients today is I'm, I'm a regular consultant to the uh, Will Eisner Studios and uh, Will and Ann Eisner uh, Family Foundation. Um, for so I do a lot of work for and. Uh, and with them, especially on Will Eisner Week, which is an annual, an annual series of events around Will Eisner's March uh, uh, March sixth uh, uh, birthday. Um, That's what, yes, I we if we haven't talked about it, Diana Schutz and I. Oh sure, about sure. It. And I know in Portland that's like a real week long event, and I'm sure in New York as well. Well, I, I, I not to pat myself on the back too much, but it's it's a series of events that. Um, Used to be like three or four events uh, around the country, and now it's uh, 75 or more events worldwide. And you know, I, I that's fantastic. I, part, I mean, that, that was what I was brought on to uh, expand the uh, the reach of Will Eisner Week. And part of which I do is just by being very annoying, just by constantly calling and emailing people and going, uh, "Are you going to do some Will Eisner Week this year? Or what do you think? Maybe do some Will Eisner Week? How about doing some Will Eisner Week?" <laughs> You know, it would be great if you did some of Will Eisner week. That would be really swell. So through my creative nagging and uh, and annoying, I've, I've, I've managed to help them. And then to develop a momentum of its own, whether it be libraries or or, or comic shops or, or schools that want to do something. And, um, uh, boy, we just jumped ahead like 20 years again, uh, or more, like 30. <laughs> yeah, but these are good rounds. No, like, my, my audience loves it when, you know, a tangent happens. But, the, but, we, but, but so yeah, Eisner was a big, you know, I, and again, I was the perfect age for Jules Pfeiffer's The Great Comic Book Heroes, which was the, which was what really introduced Eisner to my generation. You know, he had a spirit. Good, yes. He had a spirit story in that in that uh, in that book. It was the holiday gift of 1965. You know, if you were That's if so you were a comic fan, that was what you were getting for uh, the holidays. You know. <laughs> That's awesome because you know, like eight years later. In those early seventies, um, for me, the it books were those uh, Fireside oh, Origins right. comics, and then also from DC, all those Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman and Shazam from the thirties to the seventies collections. Well, and don't forget the uh, Steranko uh, history of the comics. Those were those were yeah. eye openers. You know, a lot of it is sort of history we've seen recounted again and again. Especially with the internet, you can find a lot of this stuff. But that that two part Steranko did, including a very long interview with Eisner. Um, you know, who was the grand old man of comics? If you ca- if you calculate yes. his age, he was like fifty five then. You know, <laughs> <laughs> but he was the grand old man, which you know, which which uh, which can happen in a business where people start out in their teens, right? You can if you start in your teens and you're fifty five, you've been in the business for forty years. So, 
Absolutely. You know, but I've never, you know, I have this history, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, that he had been in the business, for, you know, uh, at its beginnings, and then uh, got out uh, very wisely just before the whole Wortham thing happened uh, in, in the 50s, and spent 25 years doing educational and corporate comics, and then came back, of course, in the 70s with contract uh, with God. But he never stopped doing comics. He was always, you know, drawing and writing and doing a million different projects. Um, I have some interesting correspondence between him and Stan in the book I did with Roy Thomas, The Stanley Universe, a Tomorrow's publication, which I highly recommend. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Eisner was a big part. So I came, I came to... Um, I had gotten... Uh, I, I, I studied filmmaking in, uh, at uh, Binghamton University in upstate New York, and I came back home after college, which to me was, I grew up in New York, so I came home to New York sort of trying to figure out what I was going to do, and I thought, uh, gee, it might be fun to work at Marvel Comics for a few months while I figure out what I'm, you know, really going to do, and I had, I didn't have any direct connections, but I, like, had an indirect connection to get in for an informational interview, which led to me getting that entry-level job working uh, with Larry in the British department, and, um... And then, it, uh, needless to say, it turned out to be more than just something to do for a few months. It seemed it, it, it was a good fit, and it and it, it fulfilled, um, you know, it fulfilled a need uh, that I had to do something that was both practical but creative. You know, um, mm-hmm. it was you could oh look at that they will pay me money to make comic books. That's a pretty you know, that beats a poke in the eye of the sharp stick, you know. Um, so, so I actually had to catch up on a lot of my uh, of the continuity and the storyline. But sort of, um, you know, I guess maybe around the time that Kirby went to D.C. and somewhere during uh, the Fourth World uh, tenure of Kirby at, at D.C., I sort of... I, I, my, you know, I said my interest drifted. I went towards the undergrounds and independence, and towards movies. Uh, um, and and I'd, uh, I always had a fondness for comics. And American Splendor was a big thing for me, also when that came out. Cool. That, yeah. That that, cap, that captivated me and kind of you know reminded me uh, of what comics uh, could do. And Art Spiegelman was involved. Uh, one of my teachers uh, was a uh, guy named Ken Jacobs, who was also Art Spiegelman's mentor and a very influential teacher. So Spiegelman, uh, I remember, came up and spoke uh, at, at my school one time. And, uh, you know, so it just seemed like comics kept intersecting with my other interests, um, uh, you know, so that, I, so, the, so that I ended up in a medium that combined words and pictures is not surprising to me or anybody who knows me (laughs) (laughs) i I gotta pick up on this because you say uh, you've had some uh, you have letters between eisner and uh stan lee i i i read the eisner frank miller conversation book in dark horse right and frank asks uh, eisner his opinion of stan and he kind of it it seemed like it was a, a bit of a you know that he had to kind of find the right words and said well stan was a hell of a promoter um, and, I, and, and, and yeah, I just wonder if those letters gave you and, and your own experiences with either men or both men gave you an idea of how they felt about each other. You know, there's a uh, you can actually find this online, although, you know, I'm not sure if it's pirated or not. So but it's on YouTube. So um, there was a series that Stan did in the early 90s called uh, the comic book greats. 
mm-hmm. series of uh, DVDs, and uh, I, mean, I haven't looked for, you know, I own the DVDs, but last I looked, they were also, there's one of him and Eisner. Oh, I didn't know that. Go on, please, because I've seen the ones with Liefeld and Jim Lee. Oh, but go well, on. And, and Johnny, yeah, and, you know, well, Rabita Jr. Oh, the one yeah. with him and Eisner is uh, awesome. I mean, it's, you know, look, I, 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 although although I do actually have a copy of Eisner Miller, uh, like I'm touching it right now, <laughs> but I'm not going to open it and try to, like, confirm or, or refute uh, um you know, this is this is the classic. Uh, you know, I felt a need. I I, I didn't feel like it. Just uh, here I am. I'm like watching myself going. You know, I actually turned around and touched the book. Like I like like I had to prove to you on an you know on, a, on an audio medium that I was actually that I actually had the book here. But um, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> I appreciate the appreciation. <laughs> um, so I, you know, look, I think. Um, I I met Eisner a few times, so I can't claim to you know. I mean, I'm an expert on his work and on his interviews. And I did he did he gave me a wonderful interview we did uh, a couple of years before he passed away that 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 get that I did for Right Now magazine that gets Absolutely. reprinted yes. quite a bit. So he was Will Eisner was very nice to me. He gave me a blurb despite not liking superheroes. He gave me a very nice blurb for Superman on the couch. So I knew him a okay. little, but I can't. But I I would say he and Stan I sensed. In that, if you go look at that interview, uh, and, and so, the, so the comic book greats was Stan actually being a host, interviewing various comic book creators of, of his generation and of the more modern generation. This was in the early '90s, so as you say, Liefeld and McFarlane and Jim Lee. Um, I felt a great affection, mutual affection, and respect and admiration in the one uh, that Stan and Will. You know, uh, maybe Will felt almost some pressure to um to to say uh that thing about Stan being a promoter and not anything about the work. Also I think Will, you know, never made any secret if he didn't really like superheroes. Even the spirit was only uh by the uh, most liberal gloves liberal, and domino liberal, mask, liberal, yeah. liberal definition of superhero or superhero, you know. <laughs> um you know you know, I, uh, Will's famous story is that he had done sort of this two-fisted detective character, and then the uh, the, the person, the, the syndicate, uh, the representative of the syndicate that was going to publish it said, is he a superhero? Does he have a costume? And that's when Will drew the mask and the gloves. And I guess the, the medium the medium was new enough, you know, the, the genre was new enough then that that was, you know, that they, uh, I think the Registered Tribune Syndicate, it was called, um, said, okay, I guess he's a superhero. He's got a mask and gloves. You know? <laughs> um, sure. So I, 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 I think Will and Stan were personally fond of each other. I think Will admired what Stan did, but you know, since the bulk of what Stan became known for was superheroes, and Will didn't like superheroes, maybe it was hard for him. I really now I'm just sort of conjecturing, and I and I, uh, I, and I don't know. But but if you read the letters, you know, I mean, Stan at one point did offer. Will the opportunity to be the editor in chief of Marvel, and they had a meeting about it, and um, you know, it just I, I think Will realized he was never, you know, I think Will was happy to have lunch with Stan and chat with him about it, but I don't think he ever saw that as where, you know, and as evidenced by, you know, the contract with God in the next thirty years of Will's career until uh, you know he died, uh, not literally with a pencil in his hand, but pretty close. Um, you know, I think you can see his his interests 
were in a whole other direction. But, you know, they were both products of the same background, both uh, Bronx Jewish kids who went to DeWitt Clinton High School, um, which is where DeWitt Clinton High School was like kind of the Harvard, Yale, and Oxford of, of comics, you know. I mean, that was... Yeah, go through the alums, absolutely. Uh, Bob Kane, Stanley, Bill Finger, Erwin Hazen. Um, um, I, I know I'm forgetting like a half dozen others, and and you know, and not just in comics, like in every field. I mean, Lerner and Lowe, Rogers and Hammerstein. You know? Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, Holy shit. Yeah. Dan Shore, who was famous as a CBS and NPR news guy. So, yes, so I, said, I, 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 I always detected a great fondness and mutual respect between. Uh, between Stan and uh, oh. and, and Will, so I don't, I don't know what the quote. Uh, well, actually, it was in context of of uh, the offer to come over and, and be an editor. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And 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 you know, yeah, I just I wasn't sure. And hey, honestly, I I am not one of those uh, Kirby over Lee uh, guys. Mm-hmm. I, 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 yeah, I you know, Storenko was at a Chicago art show. And at the time, those Just Imagine Stan Lee comics from D.C. were coming out. And someone's like, you know, not too good. And he's like, you know, since 1940, Stan's written like 10,000 comics (laughs) from, you know, Captain America and the Destroyer to Millie the Model. And he's like, every genre, funny animals, westerns, you name it, Stan did stories. He's like, it's okay if, you know, he's hitting the bottom of the ketchup bottle to squeeze out the last stories or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, a, I think those stories were mixed bag. I think some were better than others. You know, I, I, sure. I think, oh, no, I, you know, Hubert and I liked the Batman one that Hubert and he did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought that was really interesting actually. Uh, so, and actually, you know, another guy, well, cause you have this perspective and, and, and really I wanted to get into Stan in terms of, you know, you, you, you've had a close relationship with Stan over the years. I don't know. Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we're like drinking buddies, but yes, I've been, I've been, uh, <laughs> I have worked with him. Oddly enough, I, I think I worked with him more after I left Marvel uh, at, at various companies than when I was at Marvel. But I mean, I, I mean, I did, you know, work with him from the time I worked with his brother in the British department in, in the seventies, and uh, you know, I edited, uh, I edited him in the eighties, and that. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man annual with the Scorpion, uh, which was oh, yeah. which was a surreal thing to be doing, to be editing, <laughs> you know, to be like going. So uh, did he come to you with this? All right, this is what I wanted to. You know, <laughs> it was just the opposite. I mean, it was really uh, he. You know, it was a story plotted by DeFalco, um, and then Stan wrote the uh, the script. And um, you know, I, I mean, most of it was. I could have printed it as it was, and nobody would have, you know, said anything complaining because it was a terrific Stan Lee Spider-Man uh, scripted story. But there were there were a few things in it that I thought didn't quite make sense. He decided to do it as a first-person narration, even though it was plotted, you know, as with an omniscient narrator. So there was some stuff that it was, you know, that it might, might have been impossible for Spider-Man to know, you know, because he was. You know, because it was because he wasn't there. You know, um, and that happens all the time in, in, in okay. narrative stories. So I think I had a couple of suggestions for him along those lines, and uh, he might have been the most professional writer I ever worked with. If he if he agreed with me, he said, you know, that's great, that, that improves it. Thanks, you know, thank you for thinking of that. If he disagreed, he made his case for why it should stay the way. It was, or else come up with an alternative that was neither what he nor I had 
uh, suggested. So, I mean, it was, he never once said to me, just, I'm Stan Lee, just do it, you know. Um, sure. Okay. Uh, so that, that was, that was, that was pretty, um, that was, that was very impressive that, um, that he took the pride in his work, you know, to neither, he neither said, I'm Stan Lee, uh, just do it, nor did he, nor did he say, I've been paid, do whatever the hell you want, but he actually, like, said, let, you know, let's discuss how to make it into something that works and that we're both happy with, you know, and again, there were maybe like, okay. maybe there were four or five lines like that in the whole story, you know, so it's not like, uh, and then I worked with him when I was at Byron Price, I worked with him, um, on on a on some comics based on a series of novels he did for Byron called Stanley's Rift World, um, and then I worked with him again when I was at a company called Visionary Media, and that was during the Stanley Media. Um, so he's all you know he's always fun to work with. He's always enthusiastic. I've actually uh, you know the past few years I've been doing uh, I've been working with Wizard, um, uh, organizing and moderating um, six to ten panels at all their shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a while, Stan was a regular at the Marvel shows, and by his choice, I was very uh, flattered and touched. I was his regular moderator at any shows we were at together, and and that was actually a very nice, uh, that was a very pleasant kind of bonding experience with him, and a way to, um, you know, spend sort of quality time in public with Stan. One of my favorite things, there was a panel in Sacramento a couple of years ago where he was under the weather, he had a flu shot, and he was having a reaction to it. And so the uh, the president of Wizard World, you know, came on before our panel, and he said, uh, you know, Stan's, you know, he, you know, he was supposed to be here yesterday, but he was under the weather from this flu shot reaction, but he's here today, but he's only going to do like a 20-minute panel. We don't want to strain him, you know, so please hope you'll understand. And, uh, you know, we're doing the panel, and Stan is fine and witty and, you know, and... Uh, insightful and all that and charming and we get to you know the 20 minute mark and i say well stan as you know uh you know we're going to make it a short panel because you're not uh, feeling that well and uh, so do you have any you know anything you want to say to the folks uh, before we uh finish you know because we have to stop and he says to me is god talking to you did he say we have to stop i feel fine let's keep going <laughs> And of course, everybody from Wizard and Stan's people are running around flashing me signals, which I have no idea what they mean, you know. Right? <laughs> and uh, so we did like an, we did another ten minutes. That, that's a classic Stan thing, where <laughs> you know he's really energized by being uh, in public and 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 by the audiences at, at these things. So he's um, so it, it's been really uh, very. Uh, an honor and gratifying to get to know him uh, in that way. So, and and you could just, I could see going back to that Eisner, that uh, comic book great thing he did with Will. Um, I, I felt like they got a kick out of each other. You know that I that I don't know if I felt in every. I mean, in all those interviews, if you, you've seen them, you know, Stan certainly keeps his enthusiasm up. He's he's never. Oh yeah. He's never anything but, you know, a a, a, a charming host. But with Will, you can. You know, again, I don't know how close they were or weren't in real life. I know that Will, you know, would uh, was a for a time a regular contributor to Crazy Magazine. You know, I mean, Eisner had a lot. You know, had sort of a very, you know, there was a period where he was sort of uh, doing a lot of different things on his way to finding his voice in the graphic novels and making that. True. You know his uh, his his life's work for the last uh, third of his life or so. Absolutely, man. So, no, no. Any, now, I want, I, 
Well, I'll, I'll, I'll switch subjects because I'm also interested because of the time you spent with Larry Lieber. We never hear about Larry Lieber. And I think he's a really important guy in comics that because he's Stan's brother, you know, gets that Tommy Aaron or I'm trying to think of other, you know. Yeah, no, I, no, I know. I know exactly. And that's, uh, you know, I don't. Phil, Joe Necro and Phil Necro, you know, Joe Necro. Yeah, be yeah, yeah. No, well, Larry is still doing, he's still drawing the Spider-Man strip. And I'm glad you said that because yeah. I own two uh, strips uh, that they did together with also uh, Wonderful Work from Alex Saviak. So, uh, yeah, man. No, and that's that's the thing. People don't realize that Larry's drawing the, the Spider-Man strip. That's amazing. Right. Well, look, if you have a sibling, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, without, I don't want to go into, you know, it's not it's not my place to talk about Larry's life. But, I mean, if you have a sibling, then, you know, imagine, you know, uh, what your... You know, imagine whatever was going on, you know, with your sibling, and then your sibling happens to be, you know, the most famous guy that ever lived in the field you're in. So it's, it's a, you know, it's it's an interesting, you know. But Larry on his own is a great guy and really funny and really, you know, uh, an excellent writer, a terrific artist, and uh, you know, he was a very. I learned a lot from him as a, um, you know, as a mentor, as a friend. You know, I still see him regularly. And um, well, I never remember seeing him at conventions. Yeah. Was he a convention goer, or maybe he's been to two or three conventions? You know, he's not um, not a public guy. Not a public guy, and and you know, there's no reason he shouldn't be. He's very, you know. I, I remember uh, there was at least one San Diego where there was a profile panel of him uh, several years ago, and uh, he's got a lot of great stories. He knew everybody, you know. Sure. That, um, you know he was, and and he was the guy a lot of you know the origin stories of thor iron man yep. um and oh i forgot about iron man yes yeah. that's right those are a lot of those origin sto- stories and early stories were written by larry from you know from very short premises uh by stan and of course you know history will never really know how much uh, the art, you know, Kirby um, or other sure. artists may have contributed, but I know, you know, that Larry's, you know, Larry certainly wrote. You can see the stories that Larry wrote are paced differently than the ones that are credited to Stan or other people. And he had, um, you know, I think Larry would um, would would actually thumbnail the stories and then write the dialogue. Um, and I don't know if he, you know, and then do it what's called full script style. You know, instead of mm-hmm. instead of plot first, he would do the the entire script. Here's you know page one, panel one. You know, here's the action. Here's the dialogue. Panel two, action dialogue. Um, yeah, he was um, he was and is, uh, you know, in some ways very similar to Stan, in some ways very different. Um, but you know, he's not. He certainly is not. In search of publicity or public appearance or glory, he's got he's you know got a a healthy sense of self and 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 is proud of his work as as he should be. Um, but you know he's his own person. You know. That's cool. No, I was just interested in again working for him and and yeah, if you just ever saw them, uh, you know, in the work dynamic, well, what it was like. Uh, well, it's funny. I mean, my I mean, Larry has mostly been a freelancer, but at the time he has been an editor, including uh, you know at C, at the Seaboard and on the British books. And so, my, it's very funny. My own personal editing style. I mean, I guess it's you know among my heaviest influences are Larry, 
uh, Louise Simonson and Jim Shooter, you know, which are certainly three disparate uh, styles and 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 influences <laughs> to have. You know, um, so I that's cool though. So, that's and that's an interesting combination. Yeah. Go on. Uh, well, I mean, I think. You know, Shooter, I worked very closely with Shooter for many years, and Jim had a very definite idea of what he wanted, what he thought comics should be. He had a real philosophy of storytelling, of what was a hero, of, you know, he, you know, he had definite ideas that he was, in, you know, that I think he had probably amassed from his uh, mentors like Mord Weisinger, and uh, I'm not sure how much work he did for Julie, but, you know, a lot of the DC, mm-hmm. uh, but especially... Uh, Mort um, and you know Jim had sort of reverse engineered when he was a child. He reverse engineered um, Marvel comics to see what made them tick. So he had that's that- so funny, and I'm like I like the way you said that because the new Iron uh, Man, the woman has been you know that's part of her origin is that she reverse engineered some armor so you can oh, that's you could say Jim Shooter is the Riri Williams of the night. <laughs> I guess that would be uh <laughs> I had to give that one some thought but uh... <laughs> No but I know what you mean and I'm really glad you mentioned that connection to more Weisinger because you know Jim has that rep of being a kind of a bully editor and I know some creators that I've I've spoken to, I mean, they offered it up right away. You know, I know Gene Colan was no Jim Shooter fan, and that and don't get me wrong, because again, Jim Shooter's a really talented guy. He was a hell of a writer. I loved all those Legion stories, and it blows my mind that you know he's thirteen and fourteen cranking this shit out. Pretty, you know, what I mean? having having reverse engineered the Marvel comics. Look, not every editor, not every editor is every freelancer's cup of tea. You know, not every match is a match made in heaven, but. You know, by the same token, you don't have to love somebody to create good comics with them, you know? Absolutely, uh, sure. Many, many good comics, just like many good movies, have been made by people who don't actually speak to each other in real life, you know? <laughs> A lot of music is made that way, too. Yes. Yeah, so, you, know, so, um, you know, that that sort of gets lost to history, and, and well, you know... It's sort of, sure. it, it's sort of, you know, as an editor, of course, I'd always pull my hair out about people who were late. You know, if something was late, if you missed shipping, if there was only eleven issues when you were supposed to have twelve out in a year, uh, and then of course that, you know, as a staff person, that's how you should, you know, feel. Um, you know, if you're if you're missing one issue of a of a profitable book, then that's a big impact on the company's bottom line. By the same token. When history looks back, nobody really knows if you know uh, Banana Man number thirty-three uh, shipped two weeks late or not. They just know if it was good or bad, and and if it and if it influenced them. And um, you know, so I, I, it, it's just funny things that seem so urgent. Is it late? Is it going to miss you? And and again, I don't want to minimize those are real concerns. You have a you have a a a product that's based on being there predictably every month. Yes. Um and if and if it's there and if it's not there and your customers there they're going to spend their money on something else and lose you know lose the rhythm of buying your thing. So it's a it's a re, it's a real concern, but in retrospect when you look at you know whatever your favorite you know collected edition of of a of a comic is or something you know you you don't know nor do you care and most of the people involved with it probably don't even remember you know whether it came out but yeah you know, Jim was yeah Jim was very uh, you know, was very concerned about that, which was very good for the company. Marvel had sort of lost its focus on getting out the comics on time to the people 
who wanted them. You know, it's nobody's fault. It was just sort of that, that you know, stuff happens. Um, so he was a big influence. And it's, again, having a philosophy of what's a story, what's a hero. Louise was a terrific model of how to, you know, of what's a story, you know, all that same stuff, plus how to deal with people to, to, to get their best work out of them. And, uh, and, and to have editorial influence without um without it being overpowering and overwhelming but but making people feel like it really was a true collaboration and larry just was larry was was and is so just an overall talented guy with an over you know an overview of story and art and and you know and and, and what makes uh an effective comic and what makes a strong cover and um and again very good at dealing with people and Making them feel valued and and feel like um, you know that they want to do their best work for you. You know that's really that so much of being an editor is sort of being a cheerleader or a co- you know being an editor is different for every person you deal with. Some people need need or want very little input. You know and that's always that that's where editorial problems always come in, where somebody needs input but doesn't want it. You know, right? Sure. And of course sure. it's a judgment call, but that's what you're paid for as an editor. You know, some people really like having input. For some people, you play good cop, bad cop, father, mother, uh, psychiatrist. You know, you play a hundred different roles, and it's different <laughs> for every uh, freelance creator you deal with. I mean, as I as I you know often say, some uh, some creators think I'm the best editor they ever worked with. Some people think I'm the worst editor they ever worked with. I'm the same guy, so there's got to be something about the personal connection whereas you know some people if you make a suggestion uh you know or or even god forbid a mandate that something has to be changed you know hate you for the smallest suggestion and other people go oh you know that's a really good idea or i don't like that idea but i see why you're saying that let's try to make something that that works for both of us you know some people are more interested in collaborating others are not and and then there's just you know the individual, the one-on-one chemistry between people that happens or doesn't happen. You know that's that the hardest thing sure. is always, you know, inheriting a book, inheriting a title that that there's already an established team on, because um, it's so hard to know what that what made that relationship work. Or, you know, I think some editors come if they get a book automatically fire the crew the team on just because. They don't want to have to deal with negotiating that. You know? The new relationship. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I'm a new guy, you're fired. You know? uh, right. You know? <laughs> well, um, yeah. You know, most people, you know, I mean, tread a middle ground. You know, I guess if they like what's being done or think there's potential. You know, every decision you make as an editor is, as you know, has, impacts somebody's income. I mean, that's a really, and, and, and somebody's career. So it's not, while I guess, you know, in a, you know, in a world of, of of just automatons where you just plug people in to do stuff, it would be this book is not selling enough. We must put in people who will make it sell. You know, the fact is, sure. You know, there's no there's no secret formula. You don't know the putting on. You know, new people will make it better. If you know, or or or, or sell more. And and every you know every decision you make impacts uh, whether somebody can pay their mortgage or not. You know, it's a pretty it's with some power comes some responsibility, you know, is the... <laughs> well, in that capacity, who are some of the newcomers that you kind of gave the first shots to? 
Perfect. Are we? By the way, it's yeah. it's it's an hour eleven. I, I don't want to monopoly. You know, are you okay talking? Wait, I don't want to. Have like another twenty minutes. Is that uh... okay, man? Of course. No, no, no. And, and forgive me. I don't mean to. Oh no, uh, no. Obviously, over, once, I, know, once I get started. Uh, no, that's great. Um, it's, no, we're for. I didn't even get to the clone saga. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> I know. I kind of feel like this is Frost Nixon and your filler, your filibuster. Oh <laughs> uh, well. That's, uh, okay. Well, I just. Uh, I'm teasing I'm you. just not sure if I'm Frost or Nixon here, but. Uh, no, I, no. Actually, I, that would I, make me. Nixon, wouldn't it? Let's, let's find another metaphor, okay? That would be. <laughs> That's a good question. You got the dollars. But no, I, like, uh, you know, yeah, real quick, give me a grocery list of some of the newcomers. Um, I don't know if I gave them literally their first work, but people who I'd like to think I sort of helped uh, get on the map were uh, Ron Friends, uh, Mark Bagley. Um, yeah, I think I think those those would probably be the main ones. I mean, I worked with Fabian uh, early in his career as his editor on, on the New Warriors, of course. Um, you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure the minute we end the conversation, I'll think of like ten other people. But those were those were those were some of the you know those really great guys, man. I'm a yeah. big friends fan. Bagley's amazing, absolutely, yeah. and Fabian's a hell of a writer, absolutely, man. And and uh, yeah, and, and and Ron Friends, I think is is is, is underappreciated. I think Ron has done a lot of oh, yeah. important comics and uh, and always you know dynamic, exciting work. Um, absolutely, you know, honestly, again, there's a guy that I missed some of his early work, but uh, Spider Girl, him and Defalco, yeah, that was fantastic. Oh, we should read his Thor, the Thor, the Thor and Thunderstrike that he did with Defalco, and and of course his Spider Man. With DeFalco from the '80s, I mean that stuff is really, you know, I mean obviously Tom's a terrific writer, but Ron, he and Ron are really when they work together, they're kind of one organism. You know, they really thoroughly discuss the stories, and it's and it's it's it's, it's you know it it's sort of you know you you always hear the stories about how creative teams you know bicker or resent each other or you know uh, or jealous of each other, whatever. Tom and Ron were like. You know, were and are the exact opposite. They really, you know, they have you know lengthy phone discussions about how they can, you know, about what the story should be and what and who the character is, and you know, and and then you know, Tom goes and writes uh, a plot. They they work um, with you know, Marvel style. Uh, okay. But that but they're they're certainly the textbook like positive example of what of, of what the Marvel style style can accomplish and. And uh, you know, to this day, they're you know they're they're very close friends and and uh, you know in regular uh, contact. And I'm, you know, it was great. I did at the Wizard Show in Pittsburgh. Ron, you know, Ron lives in Pittsburgh, so I did some panels with them and just hung out with them. And, and again, it's very touching, you know, to see it's the case. You know, as we as I said, you know, a few minutes ago, people don't have to love each other to put out terrific comics, but in this case, these guys do, and it's very. You know, as a that's cool. You know, that's I, really I, you know, they knew each other before, but I was the one to put them together as a team, and it's very kind of gratifying to see that. You know, that's awesome. No, that's it. Now, let me avail your your concerns about me bringing up the the clone saga, <laughs> yeah. because honestly, it's it's well documented. It's fine. But what I am interested in, because I literally I just had Dan Jerkins on a couple weeks ago, and just in passing, I'm like, what do you think of like? It, it's kind of funny now. There is this very seriously strong contingent of Ben Riley fans that are like, you know, hey, fuck you, I, I like that, and I like Ben Riley, and I, I'm a Scarlet Spider fan, and there's, you know, and and I I think it's fascinating. I have no, again, I was gone, I wasn't there. Well, so I, I would say, I would say, I know there's one particular website. Is that what you mean? We say it's well documented. 
What? Well, no, honestly, I just mean in terms of all the various publications. And I even want to say um, in that Titan book that you're a part of. Right. And frankly, it's in a box somewhere, or I would have dug it out before we were talking to have a, a bit more frame of reference and everything. But yeah, I thought the Clone Saga was very well documented which, which, in that Which uh, Titan book? I don't even know what Oh, it was all the various writers talking about Spider-Man. Oh, that one. The one, that Tom, so is, that the one is that the one that Tom uh, did the interviews? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's one, and I, yeah. and I don't know what you know. I, I don't remember. I don't think Sean Howe really went that deep, deep in it in his no, I don't think Marvel comics history. I don't think the story he was telling. I don't think it was that important. Yeah, germane to it. Yeah, the yeah, story. Yeah. I mean, again, I you know I've, I'm always happy to talk about the Clone Saga, but I've, I've spoken about it a lot, and that's from my own particular perspective. Obviously, it was a risky storyline. Um, the era called for risky storylines, and and we kind of enjoyed it. Yes. Sort of an adrenaline rush. Um, I had a great deal of, of hesitancy about it. However, what what I what did what we did have was great enthusiasm from my writers. My writers were so enthusiastic that we had a meeting in a hotel conference room, and the people having the conference next door complained to the hotel management that we were making too much noise. Which for me, it's like. <laughs> Holy crap! We're so enthusiastic that people are complaining about us. You know. Yeah. I mean, sure. you know, um, and it wasn't that we were like having fistfights. We were like, we were, we were just like, you know, everybody talking in, in raised voices about this aspect, hey, story, that aspect. So I had, I had a great deal of doubts about it. I think, uh, you know, and and I, in my own mind, built in, you know, uh, various back doors out of it. I think. Uh, Tom doubts Tom. about it in terms of just the actual like core of the story. Say again. Doubts about it in terms of like the actual. Yeah, of like, course. You know, of look, I mean, look, nobody. The idea. the idea that you would say everything you've been reading for the past twenty years is about a different guy is a daring risk to take. Um, sure. And uh, you know, so I, yeah, I, I wanted, and look, it's comics, so people undo continuity all the time. Um, <laughs> But I mean, there was not, you know, that was still relatively a uh, while ago, so there wasn't that much doing and undoing in, in, in that sense. Well, but my writers yeah. were enthusiastic. They were really, really into it. Um, they managed to convince Tom, who was not into it, not only to do it, but to write one of the, uh, to write Spectacular Spider-Man. Um, and, and, you know, you, it was, my, my personal theory is that the comics industry as a whole was going through a collective nervous breakdown then, right? It was, it's come, the boom had happened, the bus was starting. The clone saga, you know, I mean, Spider-Man sales were declining too, not like everything else, but the clone saga turned it around. The clone saga stole, uh, sold like crazy. So sure. people were buying it. And I feel that there was a rush to judgment on the part of certain uh, fan magazines and certain columnists and fans who, I mean, it's, it's, it's touching how passionate and concerned and, and how much they love Spider-Man were worried about what they thought was going to happen. Um, but, but there were people commenting on it who had never read Spider-Man, who had never written Spider-Man, who had never read any of the Clone Saga, and they were going, you know, so I think, you know, the industry was going through this implosion, this collective nervous breakdown, and and Marvel itself used the clone, uh, used Scarlet Spider as their mascot. That was their emblem for how things were going to be great and turn around in the Marvelution, as you I don't know if you recall that. So I think there was this there was this collective uh, freak out, and the clone became the handiest symbol of it, and and it was an easy uh, target. But the book sold like crazy. A lot of people did like them. 
And I think we're just seeing that now that Marvel, I mean, you could say if Marvel did one reprint that maybe it was some kind of whatever, you know, macabre inside joke that they were willing to print. But I mean, there's been volume after volume of the Clone Saga, of the Ben Riley Saga, right? I mean, look, the, the controversial thing was, oh, this is not, this guy is not Spider-Man. Um, and then, of course, they undid that, you know, but... I mean, you have to, in terms, I don't know, it, always, it seemed to me like a vast overreaction that had nothing to do with the content and everything to do with people freaking out about uh, about the state of the comics industry. And uh, and then in the middle of that, there was a big shakeup internally at Marvel and a big corporate restructuring, which led me to feel that uh, it would be good for me to leave. So, you know, I left under my own steam. I went to work for Byron Price and uh, started uh, for him a line of uh, of digital comics that were so new it was called virtual comics, and uh, you know went on to my var- <laughs> my various other uh, writing and editing and packaging adventures uh, over the years. Um, but yeah, the clone. So the clone thing, it was uh, you know uh, that, that's if you have any any specific question, but that's sort of my feeling about it. That it was a an overreaction to what was, you know, a pretty good storyline. Then, of course, the company decided it was doing so well that they would stretch it out for, you know, from a relatively short storyline to an ongoing storyline that would never end. And I think, every, you know, a couple of the writers have told me they didn't have backdoors as far as they were concerned that, you know, Spider Peter was Ben and Ben was Peter and that was that. And, you know, maybe they had to convince themselves of that. But you know, editorially, I and Tom, I don't know if we had the same backdoors, we definitely both had, you know, moments where we could point to and go, that's the moment where we fooled you and that they, you know. And of course, if you look back, you said you'd read the original clone stories, you know, there's that mm-hmm. moment where Peter gets, like, the DNA tested, or whatever he does, and he's, and he's standing on a rooftop, and instead of reading the, uh, the report to confirm that he is indeed himself, he says, I know I'm me. You know, and I don't need to read this. And he like throws yes. it and it scatters to the wind, which, which indicates to me, and I guess it must have indicated to uh, Terry Kavanaugh, who came up with the original idea to bring back the clone, is that somebody was setting up future stories there. You know, you don't you don't do something like that without you know thinking, yeah, I may come back to that someday. You know, I guess sure. I think it was was it Len who was the writer on that? Was it Len? I, I never. No, it was Jerry Conway. It was Jerry. Conway. I never asked. Yeah. I never asked Jerry. I should you know I should probably ask Jerry. I, Jerry, I'm gonna have to, did you plant that clue on purpose? <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask him as well. You're 100 percent right. Well, and also I remember that what if where right, they, they brought right. the, the spider clone back, and I loved that. And again, I remember the original story. So well, and I and the fan the the fan media reaction that happened then. I, I I wonder what you think of Captain America, Hail Hydra, and the backlash that caused. Even as we speak, last week, Riri Williams, uh, I think, got uh, an equal amount of applause, but also a very strong uh, reaction to, oh, great, a white guy's writing another you know character of color. You know, Cute, my, but, my feel, uh, having been an insider, I think somebody in publicity is doing their job right. You know, I mean, fans love to get... You know, I mean, at least certain vocal fans on the internet love to get upset about anything. Sure. Um, no, I don't think it was a slap in the face to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. I don't think they were saying Captain America was a Nazi and had always been a Nazi. Um, you know, I think they did their job, excite controversy and sell comics. You know, I mean yep. that. Uh, so I, 
I never saw it as anything other than that. And a lot of the criticism I saw online was, as always, from people who hadn't actually read the story. You know? <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, right. But, I mean, look, I think... Uh, right, I, I, the job of a comics company and of a comics editor and of comics creators is to... If you... Right, right. Readers think they want one thing. They think they want good old Spidey, and it's not. And again, not a not a judgment on readers. Just as as because this happens to me of stuff that I'm, you know, a fan of. You want things to be predictable and regular. The world, Familiar. the world is so crazy. You want to be able to know that you can go buy a Spider-Man comic or a Batman comic and and kind of know. But but in practice. People, as often as not, don't buy those comics. They go, I don't need to buy it. I know what's going to happen. So right. your job as a comics person, as a comics professional, is to piss readers off just enough that they have to buy the next issue to see how you're <laughs> screwing up. I can't believe they did that. I'm so mad I'm going to buy the next issue. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah. you, have to, you have to tread a fine line because you know, at a certain point, they, they may stop buying. They may, you may tick them off so much that they decide sure. that they don't. But – you know, your your job and what people want, you know, you know that as a consumer of, of, of media yourself. You want something that gets you just upset enough to keep coming back, but not so upset that you leave forever, you know. And no, I think know. people can point – they can point to TV shows that do that. Certainly right. as as uh, episodic and, and uh, you know, each year has its own story arc the way a lot of shows do and stuff. No, I can even think of like uh, a couple of USA shows that I sure. was a big fan of, and then they took a left turn, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm watching it anymore. Right, I don't care. And, 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 you know, so. and, and that's uh, right. But then maybe, but maybe in a year you go, oh, I haven't watched that for a while. Check it out. Exactly. Yep. Um, yeah, that that's the thing with, you know, with genre storytelling. Right there's, right there's genre expectations, and how far can you test those limits, and how far can you, can you, can you push? Uh, you know, I saw Boy an Obscure Western on the Turner on Turner Classics last night. I don't even remember the movie. It had Robert Taylor and um, uh, I'll think of his name, the guy from Pick Up on South Street, uh, who's the um, Pick Up on what? Pick Street? Up on South Street. You know that movie? It's a Sam Fuller. No, and I know, and I'm an old movie buff, and shame on me that I. Oh, know. oh, well, I'll go watch it tonight. It's called Pick Up on South Street, directed by Samuel Fuller. It's, uh, I love Sam Fuller's show. Oh, well, then, oh, you must watch it. I know, shame on me. I know, well, that's what I'm saying, man. No, you know, I'm, I'm really new to, like, I, I, I've got a lot more Fuller to watch. I've got a lot more Bud Bedeker to watch, and, you know, oh, I mean. Oh, good, good. And even pronounced, you know. and even pronounced Bedeker, right, so that's, which I've never done. Um, I heard James Garner say it in an interview. That time. <laughs> so, um, uh, I'll think of it. I've heard a very famous actor, of course, I'm blanking it. Anyway, this, it was a story about former... Two former uh, uh, criminals, you know, uh, um, bank robbers who were friends in the in the West, in the old West, and one of them becomes uh, a sheriff, and but uh, but he knows where they buried some loot that they uh, that they stole together years ago, and mm-hmm. um, and and so the last ten minutes of the movie. Right, you know it's going to be a showdown between these guys, but it's nineteen. The movie's from nineteen fifty-eight, so there's already been thirty years of, or more, forty, you know, whatever, thirty, forty, fifty years of of, of showdowns in westerns. So you can see 
everybody involved in the movie, you know, the director and the writer and the actors, struggling to make this showdown different. You know, it was, all, it was also the era of the psychological western. You know, so everybody trying to uh, Richard Widmark. That's the other star. Was Richard. Oh, Widmark. great! Oh, um, so so every so everybody trying to make the showdown different, and it turned out that it was really like a very dull showdown. You know, it was like, <laughs> they, they, I mean, I got what they were trying to do. It's like let's do this thing different here than you would expect us. You know, and then. Uh, by the time it ended, you just kind of went, oh, thank God, that's over already, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, I mean, I, I think comics uh, runs into that problem where you, you know, any genre does where you want to fulfill the expectations, and that's sort of a definition of genres that it will fulfill certain expectations, but you want to do it in a surprising way, and that, uh, you know, it becomes a, 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 a challenge, and then sometimes uh, that's where those controversial storylines come from, and then. You know, again, so it's 20 years late past the Clone Saga, and Marvel certainly has no problem, nor should they, you know, printing, you know, fancy color, not just like essential volumes, but color uh, uh, reprints of 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 the uh, of the Clone stuff because it was done. Just look at the names on the credits, you know. I mean, some of the top people sure. in comics. So even if you, whatever you felt about. You know, and eventually, of course, they did undo the the thing anyway, so I could blame on. But the, you know, um, but I, I look and I get I get why I do think it was an overreaction in general, fueled by a few influential uh, writers coming at it from a place of caring. But I think again, over uh, you know, fan fan writers coming at it from a place of caring. But I think it was over. Reacting and 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 again tribute to how much they loved Spider-Man and 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 the associated sure. characters. But again, that's that you just have that constant push and pull between doing something daring and shocking and doing the same old thing. I understand. No, and I appreciate the explanation because, like I said, I I do think that's kind of in the air right now from a fandom standpoint. Right. And sometimes you need to hear that perspective to remember, you know, just how it works. That's all, and what what the attempt is. Sure. And yeah, well, thank I, you know, you. God. Oh, I appreciate I, that. No, absolutely, man. My pleasure. And and truly, because I, I, to wrap up, because I don't want to, I don't want to overtax you. But uh, right now was really one of my favorite <laughs> magazines, and oh, I was sorry you, that it you. ended. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to do. I loved working with Tomorrow's. You know, John Morrow and and his crew are 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 just a pleasure to work with. Uh, what it came down to, as you would imagine, is that I is you know sales. I mean, there were. There was a uh, hardcore, uh, a fairly sizable hardcore of people who really loved the magazine and appreciated what uh, I was doing with it and what you know what we were doing with it, um, and that was very gratifying. You know that, you know, and and it was very, you know, I, I, to this day I get people much like you telling me how much they loved it, and uh, but I think it um, it just it just didn't have enough people to to make it worth. Uh, anybody's while uh, to keep doing it financially, um, but certainly. But thank you. you know, I, I put a lot of work and a lot of heart into it. You know what? I, what I was proudest of that I did with it, uh, oddly enough, was part of my um, my tenacious, annoying uh, uh, parts of my uh, uh, of my character where. You know, if you if you read interviews with a lot of people, and this is what happened, how did you get into you know, you say, How do you get into the business? And they say, Well, you know, I was talking to John Byrne or whoever one day and then they go on and, and you go oh, wait a minute, uh, pardon me. How did you get to be talking to John Byrne one day? What 
Yeah. Oh well, yeah. you know, because uh, and then though, you know, you you would have to, I would have to like sort of excavate with people like how they got to the point of being somebody who even had an opportunity to get in. And of course, you can't duplicate somebody else's life, but I thought it was useful to do that just so people reading it would think, well, of course, I can't be this person, but what in my life is similar? Who, you know, who is a cousin of a friend of a colleague? You know, I mean, how can... Where in the chain of you know of human uh, interactions is there somebody or some way that I can get my work noticed or get my foot in the door, you know, and especially in the age of the internet, you know, and Facebook and and stuff like that. But but even sure. but even before that, so I thought I thought it was interesting that a lot of people took for granted how you know, they they literally got their start. You know, it would, uh, just so many people who were like smart, insightful people would just say, you know, stuff like, yeah, I was talking to whoever. How did you get to talk to that person? You know, what put you in a position where you could be talking to that person or, you know, or, 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 or have a, a meeting with them, you know? Um, so it's funny that, and, and we did a lot of other, I think, good stuff, but thank you. I appreciate it. The magazine was a lot of fun to do and, uh, and, um, and, and and to this day, I do get a lot of uh, compliments on it. So if everybody had bought ten copies, we'd still be doing it. But, um, <laughs> but I, don't expect, I don't expect you to be that dedicated, you know. Do do they keep the trade in print, the collection? Um, no, unfortunately. You mean the best of? Yeah. No, that's. Uh, How about I'd digitally? Like it, I'd like it to go. I would like it to be back in print. Um, but um, so right there. You know, write to John. Let him know you'd like it to be back in print. Write to John Cook. Yeah. No, no, uh, John Morrow. Or, John Morrow. Me, John Morrow. Shame yeah, on me. Yeah, shame on me. Right. I see him every San Diego. You're right. I um, buy my. I, I, that's my. That's my Sunday ritual. I buy all the. Like you were saying about how uh, Michael Urie and uh, Back Issue right. had something new on Dazzler, and yeah, that's my thing. It's like I go to <laughs> for the flight home. I have like a stack of like several Tomorrow's magazines. There you go. Right. No. Yeah. That, well, look, everything they do. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not. I don't know if I'm a big. Uh, I don't know if I find, uh, you know, they have a, a magazine about Legos that's very popular. I don't know if Legos are really yes, my thing. If, if if it was, I'm sure I would need to have that magazine. But you know, no. But everything they do is really uh, terrifically done, alter ego and draw and, and back issue and, and and all that stuff. So um, yeah, man. Yeah, I would love to see the best of uh, back in print. You know, John, I think is, you know, is. is um, doesn't think it's the right time, and he, you know, he's the publisher. He may well be right. On the other hand, if he gets deluged with uh, requests and demands from people to put it back out, then um, then then it'd be fine with me to, to to redo it or do a second volume or something. Because we had a lot of, again, that's why I did that that interview with Eisner that was just um, that gets reprinted periodically. It was, and again, it's just sort of. You know, I asked some questions. It was Will. You know, basically, it's it's not really that hard to get a good interview out of Will Eisner. Well, now it is, but you know, it's, it's yeah, when he was alive, it wasn't that hard to get a, <laughs> to get a great interview out of Will Eisner. You just got to go, uh, you know, and then he he's Will Eisner. You know, <laughs> yeah, great story. No, I, obviously, great storyteller. Gee, really, yeah. who would have thought? But, but yeah, no, I I understand. I got to I did get to see him live a couple times. Right. Uh, so, but you know, but, yeah, but check, check out that uh, that thing online. The um, if it's still on YouTube, it's uh, the, you know the comic book greats, Stanley and Will Eisner. You'll see the rapport that the two of them have is really uh, very touching, and 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 they say a lot of smart stuff. And, well, and I, you I get want... to watch Will draw too. 
Oh, that's and that's true because I remember yeah. from the other artists that were right. on there. I, I do want uh, to acknowledge because it was something that I heard from Diana Schutz. I mentioned it to you when uh, emailing you to put this together. Um, your ambition to have some sort of comic book database of these interviews because, uh, man, I'll tell you, I know that uh, the comic books journal, the comics journal guys have a lot of great uh, written and also audio. Of, of like panels and, and different interviews that have happened over the years. And it just, I really do think it's important. And I'm sure you feel the same way that, you know, the history is maintained and that, you know, the story is told properly and it isn't that second guessing by people that really don't know the behind the scenes facts of, you know, just how people were or how they were to work with the, what went into the creation. I mean, though there are mysteries to, you know, Barry Allen's create, you know, creation because, you know, the, we didn't have, uh, alter, you know, alter ego or uh, amazing heroes back in the eighties, or uh, you know, comic, comics interview to kind of set the record. I think. Well, I mean, and look, as with all history, you have to talk to a lot of people because everybody has their own blind spots and and absolutely uh, and and, and uh, things that they want to emphasize or not emphasize, or just that they don't remember accurately. So, but but starting, I, I want you to say uh, to start out the the question or statement or whatever the heck it was. Um, there, look, every time you go to a convention, there are panels, right? Every, and certainly many of them are, many of them are not audio or videotape, which always breaks my heart, and, you know, because it's kind of the last thing you think of. You're hustling so much to get the personnel together and to get the panel work, you know, and then and these days to put together a pen, like a PowerPoint slideshow. And then you go, oh, man, is that... You know, I guess the good news is that there's a lot of people in audiences who now do record these things. But, but the point, that, the thing that I guess I'd said to Diana and that I, that I say uh, a lot is that, right, if any time you're at a convention and somebody's making a videotape or just somebody has their phone on is making a recording or um, any time you, you see somebody shooting how – many, how many times have you been to conventions – and seeing people shooting uh, interviews for documentaries that never come out, right? Yeah. And again, you know, I know, you know, life is long, art is short, or the other way around. No, no, I agree with you. So, I mean, so, uh, but the fact is that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of uh, recordings of panels, of interviews with people. I'm, I participate in a bunch of myself stuff that's just gathering, you know, digital dust somewhere. And yeah, if time and money were no object, I would just spend. You know, you know how Jay and Silent Bob went around the country beating up kids at the end of Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> I would do that. I would I would travel from city to city, and I would just beg, borrow, steal, cajole, pay, do whatever I had to to get people. Say, you know that documentary you started 20 years ago. You're probably not going to finish it. How about contributing your footage of the interview with this person who's been dead for 20 years to this database? Yeah. So, so yeah. there's somewhere somebody really rich with a lot of time on their hands and a lot of passion should do that. Should just put together, you know, some kind of archive. Um, I'm working on that lottery scheme, and if it happens, you know, then I, I swear to you, I'll do it. You know. Okay. You know. Well, I'll, I'll hold to that. I will watch the lottery well, but, results and see if you if you win. <laughs> Is there like a is there a minimum you have to win? I mean, I assume if you win ten dollars, you're not going to do it, right? Yeah, no, definitely not ten dollars. Yeah, scratch off is going to do it, unfortunately. Oh. No, I, no, I mean, I'm just sort of powerballer, and not, of course, kidding. But no, honestly, that's one of the reasons why I started Word Balloon was to and and you're right because I don't mean to sound that like it just has to be chapter and verse of no, this is how it was created. Period. No, it is those moments oh, in sure. channel yeah. and and even our conversation as well. I mean, this is why I think it's interesting. It it 
again, it, I, and I guess uh, I, can, I can't think of a better word than set the record straight, but it's just great to get observations from the creative community while this stuff is being made. And just to capture people while they're alive, while they're yeah. in their primes, or, or while they're in you know whatever period in their life or career you catch them. Yes. Just to have that uh, material, you know, because I, I, I find that, uh, look, I'm sure I'll get off this uh, call and say to my wife, why the hell did I say that? You know, whatever it was, I, you, know, the, you know, I'm sure there'll be something, that, I, I don't know if I should have said, you know, so I think even the most guarded person, you see an interview with them and suddenly there's like this, they say something, they go, I don't think they meant to say that, you know, <laughs> and it's just sort of interesting to get these kind of glimpses behind the curtain, but just to see, you know, what. You know, you can read a hundred interviews with Gil Kane or whoever, but it's not until you see a uh, footage of Gil Kane speaking to you. Oh, that's what it was something like. What it was like to be in a room with Gil Kane, you know? Sure. Or, or uh, yeah, I, I, right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think there are other. I think movies. I guess maybe and TV just maybe probably because they are movies and TV are seem to be better about documenting and. Um, and kind of warehousing that kind of stuff, but I bet there's a ton of stuff even in those media that that's not, you know. And 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 look, you could spend your whole life, I'm sure, you know, watching YouTube videos of your favorite creators. It's not like that stuff. Like none of that stuff is there, but a lot of it isn't. And and it just it just seems a shame that all the work that people put into getting those interviews, that I you know. I mean, again, I'm I I have been part of you know, and and I'm part of sort of. You know, documentaries that were started that kind of stalled, and you know, I right. No, life gets part, in the way. Yeah. Life gets in the way. Yeah, of these yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, but then this stuff, you know, and again, especially because it's digital, right? Then nobody knows what it is, especially if the technology changes and and nobody can watch yes. it. You know, I mean, how many times do you hear about some, you know, somebody who had some great archive of whatever type and then it's like uh, oh it got thrown out because nobody knew what it was and you go oh man it's in a land uh, micro cassette interview that I did uh, in the early 90s with Muhammad Ali right. it's a prime example of that <laughs> I know exactly what you mean yep there you go so that yeah, that's sort of my my dream that uh, I hope somebody does or maybe some organization you know I mean it sounds like more of a thing that an organization would do so maybe maybe somebody would hear this and become inspired maybe some 12 year old hearing this now will be the person who goes on to dedicate their life to it I hope so there you go no absolutely man well we didn't even scratch the surface no and I, I really appreciate like you talking to me like real fast I know um, you're coming to Chicago in August I'm coming to Chicago uh, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to all the wizard shows this year so anytime you see a wizard show I will be there doing panels and uh, you know if you stuck with if you stuck with listening to me for an hour and a half then you probably would like my panels too but although I, I do let other people talk more on you know since I'm usually not the subject of the panels but yeah I do panels with artists combinations of artists of people who are uh, you know, known uh, in history. And this year, Chicago is going to be the 40th anniversary of the Chicago Con. So a bunch of people who started that will be doing a panel. And uh, yeah, look up again. You know, the Wizard World has a list. I'll be doing uh, all the shows this year, probably next year as well. You know, that uh, next year seems a long way off, but it's not really. Um, I got a bunch of projects that I'll be announcing soon, hopefully, that people can 
uh, know about him. My book, Superman on the Couch, and the Rough Guide to Graphic Novels, and the Stanley Universe, um, and back issues of Right Now, um, or back issues of Back Issue, if you like Back Issue, but that's a very... There you go. Um, but, um, yeah, I hope your, your listeners uh, uh, certainly feel free to check that stuff out. And yeah, come say hi at uh, this, this, the end of this month. I'm not going to be at San Diego this year, but I will be at the Wizard Show in um, in Columbus, in, the, in Columbus, Ohio. At the oh, at the end of the month. Last okay. weekend of this month. So uh, I'll be there doing panels and at Artist Alley. So if you should be in Columbus or uh, in the vicinity, come by, say hello, and uh, that's the story. That's excellent, man. No, I will see you in... Uh in August, and I know a lot of my listeners have seen you in action at uh, conventions and panels and stuff. So it's uh, that's great. And when you when one of the new projects is ready, please come back because we could talk about Superman on the couch and your your history of the the Jewish creators that you know okay. uh, started the business and everything. And no, I'd love to I'd love to get more stories. That's from you. Well, if you want to do a, if you want to do a sequel, uh, let me know. I can, as you know, as you, know you, you can see it's very hard to get me to talk about myself. You know, <laughs> that's all right, man. Uh, all right. No, honestly, John, thank you. That's Danny Fingeroff. Make sure you uh, stop by and say hello to him if you're coming to uh, the Chicago Wizard World Comic Con. Uh, that'll be uh, in about two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. Um, I want to say like the 18th through, uh, or yeah, the 18th uh, through that weekend. So, and let him know that you heard him on Word Balloon, by all means. So that's what I'm going to do when I see him. But uh, that was great, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Word Balloon Today was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are uh, great deals happening now at InStock Trades. Don't forget, as always, if your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping. They make it easy when you think of some of the books that are out there. For example, Tarzan, The Complete Joe Kubert Years from Dark Horse Archives. This is an incredible volume, and it's at a great price, 42% off, $17.39. Just sit back and appreciate the genius of Joe Kubert. And really, uh, Tarzan was a great, great run for Joe. I remember it from the 70s, and uh, you can enjoy it now at this amazing price. You can get JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Battle Tendencies. Uh, this is, uh, let's see, it's, uh, pardon me, it's JoJo's Bizarre Adventures, and I think the name of the uh, story is uh, Battle Tendency. Uh, volume 4, uh, this is a great uh, manga book, and it's at uh, 30% off, just $13.99. You can get the Harley Quinn mask and book set. Volume 1, Hot in the City, great stuff from Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor. Uh, 40% off, $19.24. You can get, of course, Suicide Squad, the most wanted Deadshot uh, collection which uh, features uh, the writings of Brian Buccoletto. And uh, Victor Bogdanovic is the artist. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, Brian is a hell of a writer. And I'm really glad that uh, uh, it was Kyle um, Higgins that told me, hey, man, really pay attention to what Brian's doing. Because, I, you know, I, mean, I was loving what Francis and Brian were doing. And he's like, check out Brian's solo stuff. And he's right. Brian's a hell of a writer. Got to see him for two seconds at San Diego. Check out his uh, volume on Deadshot. It's 50% off. It's just $8.49. Some of the great deals happening at InStockTrades.com. Don't take my word for it. Go to the website. Check it out for yourself. Prices you won't believe on great books. InStockTrades.com. Thanks again for listening. Thank you, League of Word Balloon listeners, for your support. More San Diego content is coming. Uh, the reason for the delay, it's not a really delay per se, because you've seen I've been cranking it out, but I wanted to take a break from it and put out these uh, last two episodes. 
uh, because they were kind of time sensitive. I wanted to have Danny's uh, an interview out there with plenty of time before Wizard Chicago to get a sense of what he's doing with the uh, convention programming that he puts out, along with his stories. And the same goes with the Variety Television book that Mary Beth Liebman co-wrote. Uh, with Steve Bender, and I thought uh, that was really uh, interesting. And uh, also that book's been out for a month, and I think they wanted the publicity as soon as possible. So I was happy to do that. I've got two panels still to come from San Diego. Um, the original art panel was Sal Abenati, where I intend to include visuals. Um, it will be an audio podcast, but also uh, you might want to check out the YouTube production I'm going to put together for that because I will put in a lot of the images that uh, we were describing as we were doing the panel because I think it would just make a little more sense uh, for you to have the full effect. In fact, Word Balloon uh, podcasts have been coming out via YouTube now for about a month. It started with R.J. Ryan, and uh, every new episode since then uh, has is also available at YouTube. So uh, if you want to get it that way, that's great. I th- who knows what kind of uh, listenership we might uh, reach uh, go- tapping the YouTube audience. That certainly is bigger than any other pool I could possibly be in. So uh, happy to do that. But when I have more visually intense uh, presentations and panels, I'm going to take that extra step and make sure that the YouTube video has that kind of content in it as well. The other panel, of course, on uh, comic book films, uh, from the 40s and 50s that have been forgotten, but were very significant comic book films and worthy of your attention. And also um, Trevor uh, Goring, the wonderful comic book artist and storyboard artist for Hollywood, working on films like Watchmen and Spawn and uh, the X-Men uh, X2. And he did uh, the Fantastic Four films, the early Tim Story films, and then also, um, you know, continues to work. He did Thor The Dark World recently. And uh, so he has a great perspective on the comic films of the 90s and early 2000s, comparing things in this uh, post-Iron Man world, because I think that's really where the seismic shift really happened. Yes, people say Sam Raimi, and those are great movies, you know, whatever. But it really seems to me that, you know, the real when when the Marvel films really started with Iron Man, that's really representative of uh, the current era that we are in. So uh, great to get his perspective on how comic book films have changed uh, from the uh, 90s and early 2000s to where we are today. And uh, that presentation is also coming up in a, just a few days here on Word Balloon. Thanks a lot for listening. More great uh, conversations with uh, new people and old favorites as well in the days and weeks and months ahead. Stay with me. Thanks for being on the ride on Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.